Okay, we're back, and I'm going to start with a um, brief uh, story of my own. One of my own experiences, and I agree, uh, Kerry talked, first of all, about the us and them. You know, you, you have officers that are coming that don't live in the community that they're policing, and you go into a community every day of your shift, and usually you don't get called to a birthday party or a wedding or a baptism or anything like that. It's always, usually, somebody's in crisis. And so you... You go home, you feel like you're in a community that's free from these issues, and then every day you go into some place to pacify an area because of all these you know, complaints that are coming in. And I think one of the underlying, uh, one of the root issues there is that a lot of officers don't really have an understanding of the community that they're serving. I mean, it didn't take me long, I think, uh, it would have been 1991, and I was on Capitol View Drive. And at the time, um, Mike Bloomberg took a lot of heat for it because of his stop and frisk. We used to call it field observation reports, mm -hmm. but we stopped this guy at about 1.30 in the morning. And obviously, we patted him down, make sure he's got the weapons and stuff, and we start talking to him. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, you know, where are you coming from? You know, it's like 1.30. He says, man, I'm coming from work. Yeah, where do you work? Tells us where he works. And then, I mean, so how come, you know, you, he says, man, I had to walk home. And I go, why? And he didn't have the 50 cents at a time to take the bus. And even though, you know, obviously I, I didn't grow up in a you know, wealthy household or anything like that, but that was a sort of a shocking thing for me to realize at that point that a guy couldn't spare 50 cents to take the bus. And for me, that was a kind of eye opener because you go, wow. You know, you look at the areas that you go in and you know, lots of calls for service. Obviously anybody that had work capital view drive um, knew what it was like even before the Redskins stadium went up nearby. Um, but you have this sort of perception of the area that you're policing and I think we have a, a um, sort of the same issue. We kind of blanket people within the area with the same brush. We have a lot more you know, socioeconomic issues that are exacerbated by where they live. And we are never really educated on that aspect of it. Reggie, Reggie if I could jump in for a second, I, I would love to ask you some questions about the story that you just told. Yeah. Um, why'd you stop that guy? That was the norm at the time, right? You see somebody out at 1.30 in the morning, you again, and this is the issue about labels that I go to. Mm -hmm. View Drive was a lot yep. of high drugs, high crime. You had a lot of shootings, you know, all those things are happening. And you see somebody and you go, the automatic assumption is, mm -hmm. is this guy part of the, the problem? Why this area is like the way it is? So full disclosure for anybody watching, one of the very first Prince George's County police officers that I ever met was Reggie Fresh. And I went on a ride along with my best friend, Dwayne Preston, and he worked on the squad with Dwayne Preston. And guys like Reggie and Kim and Dwayne changed my perception of who the Prince George's County police were. I heard that dude from the first time I met him. So I ask you this question because I know your heart. I know who you are. I ask you, why did you stop him? He didn't, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just walking home from work. He didn't do a thing wrong. I'm gonna suggest I know the answer. It's because you were told that if somebody's walking on Capitol View Drive at 1.32 o'clock in the morning, if you 
doing your job, you need to stop them, pat them down, and ask them a question. And to be honest, you know, one of the, you know, we make, we use words and we use them in jest. Oh. But I sort of remember at the time, but the phrase was like, there's only two types of people out after midnight. Mm -hmm. And you guys have heard it. Um, but you say it in jest, but when you sort of un unintentionally or unconsciously act on them, I mean, obviously it was, it took that night for somebody to explain to me why I'm walking home at 1.30 in the morning for it to sort of hit home and go, wow. You know, after that, you know, I've had, you know, conversations with people, you know, in high drug areas, especially, you know, Burnside and Greymount, a block from the station. You know, and a guy said to me one day, dude, I can't be really seen talking to you. I live here. When you guys leave, I've got my wife and kids. And so there's a tendency also to look at people that don't volunteer information as being part of the problem as well. You know? But there's so many underlying social factors makes a neighborhood what it is. And like yeah. I said, there's really no, I've never, you know, I, my FTO never taught me to do anything, you know, crazy. But you grow up, you work in an area where you're never really given the full information about the people that live there. And I'm going to fast forward a few years later, I'm the community policing supervisor. Um, and there's two things. There's a disconnect between what the community wants and what the police department thinks is important. I would go to a community meeting and they would complain about speeding in the neighborhood, illegally parked cars, uh, tractor trailers in you know, the neighborhood. And those would be legitimate concerns. But every morning at the nine o'clock uh, meeting, it was rapes, robberies, murders, burglary that you focused on. And so there's this disconnect between the police department and the community about priorities. But I wanna, hey, I wanna, I wanna jump ahead a little bit. Reggie, I had one more follow-up question based on yeah. what Kerry just asked you. Yeah. Uh, after that encounter on Capitol View Drive, um, how did that change your thinking? Well, exactly, it, it, it just told me, man, you know, I have, I have no idea during the day what people are going through. You know, the struggles that folks are making. I mean, and I think this is, this is, a, this is one of the complex issues about, about policing. When I was a patrol officer, I mean, I remember my beat partner and I were going to the grocery store and buying groceries and taking it to a family where the husband and wife were drug addicts, but they had a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. I know guys when I was a supervisor, I had two guys go Christmas Eve night to Toys R Us convince the office manager to open up so they can buy toys for a family where they thought the father had sold the, the toys to buy drugs. They used their own money and bought toys and took it back to that family. And there's things like that that happen every single day that goes unreported. Right. But unfortunately, it's the bad instances or the instances like you know, Minneapolis, Atlanta, New York, where these instances happen and we've got to pay the price because like, like I said the last time when we make mistakes or disregard people's humanity people die oh, yeah. I'm going to add, offer one more follow-up question yeah. um, and, and this isn't an, it's not an indictment on you I think all five of us have are guilty of this being part of it but after hearing that man's story 
the next night at 1 30 morning when you saw somebody walking down the street did you do the exact same thing that you did to that man i'm going to assume the answer is yes right well, you know, to be quite honest, um, that, and I remember the specific year because soon after that, I was transferred to CID. So field observation reports wasn't quite my thing. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, you reaped the reward in doing the work that you did before. So that goes back to my point about incentives. You did that because you didn't want to be working on a Saturday night. Well, you know, summer, well, you, know street. Well, you stopped that man because you were told from above, from the heavens, that these are my expectations of you, and my point is that is what has to. But this and this goes to my entire point about this this um, issue of institutional bias. Mm -hmm. At times, it's not intentional. It may be unintentional because of an individual action, or unintentional because of a department policy. Mm -hmm. But the policies, even though it appears to be neutral or legitimate they have an unintended harm mm -hmm. that results. Sure. And it's infringing on somebody's right to, to, to move about freely. Uh, and these instances sort of leads to encounters like we saw in Atlanta last night. There's tons of instances where we could talk about, um, and I, which is exactly a good segue into the next thing I want to talk about, is this zero, to this zero tolerance issue. Because if we go back, Eric Garner in New York is dead because he was selling, um, you know, uh, illegal cigarettes. Alton Sterling, uh, I think in uh, Louisville or Louisiana, because he was selling CDs. George Floyd, he tried to pass a $20 bill. So is this policing philosophy that we have of zero tolerance where we're going to enforce every single law no matter what it is, no matter how minor it is, is this a contributor not only to the perception of excessive use of force and brutality by the police, but also a remnant of what we started off talking about was this system based on racism and, and bias and these uh, minor infractions, if you will, mm -hmm. in terms of um, minority communities? Um, I, I think, uh, Reggie, when you talk about zero tolerance, it's uh, just, by the, just by the name, zero tolerance means that um, you're, there's no, nothing to mitigate. Right. And um, certainly in policing, that is a problem because just given the, the situation that took place the other night where the um, person got the officer's tasers. If you look at where that started and where it ended, um, there should have been uh, some mitigation in there some way, somewhere. Um, now, I think um, Kerry said it right. He says, we're looking for officers that are compassionate. We're looking for officers that can communicate. We're looking for officers that are thinkers, that are able to think on their feet. This is the policy. This is what the book says I should do, but I got a unique situation here. And we're looking for officers to be able to take that unique situation and do something different because it, it's the right thing to do or it makes sense. And that's what's missing because uh, I think what you got out there right now is you got robots. 
And when things don't turn out, like the book said, they don't know what to do. And granted, things happen very, very quickly sometimes, but when, uh, for some people, if they're not trained properly and they have a situation and they don't know what to do, um, or they're afraid, that's when things go awry. Mike? But Mo, that goes back to my argument about the disconnect between leadership and policy. Mm -hmm. So you can have policies in place, but if you don't have good leaders to where your officers know when they get in these situations, doing what's right supersedes what that policy book says, then, then we have a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, Reggie, uh, to answer your question about the, uh, I think you said something about a connection between zero tolerance and the abuse. I can't say that we can blame one on the other because if you take the five of us, for example, where we are in our lives as far as maturity, experience, wisdom, we can do policing with a zero tolerance policy minus the abuse. It's a matter of knowing how to, how to treat people and zero tolerance doesn't mean 100% arrest or 100% citations. It just means if you see this happening in your presence, that you make it known to, to that citizen that, hey, um, this isn't acceptable in this community. How are we communicating that currently? Uh, in a lot of instances, we aren't. We are not. That's why we have these incidents, because we're not. Right. Not communicating that in a proper way. Hey, you know, you know, I'm troubled by this issue of zero tolerance because when you say zero tolerance from a police perspective, it 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 means just that there's no leeway, and I think that's crazy thinking because when you're dealing with human beings. Um, not everybody is on the same page. Not everybody's in the same circumstance. Um, somebody may have just wandered into an area where the police are doing some surveillance or whatever unknowingly, um, but get caught up. So zero tolerance can have an impact on people um, that have nothing to do with the situation. So, you know, it's not something that I would you know, use a blanket endorsement for. I think there's places and there's times where you need to be more aggressive and more progressive in your policing than in others. Um, but I think when, when I've heard about zero tolerance policies, they apply across the board. And I think politicians, police chiefs, departments have gotten in trouble uh, because of that and have ended up in court having to explain um, why did you take the action that you took? Well, it was because of this zero tolerance policy. So I think that zero tolerance um, has a lot of negative tones to it, not only for police departments, but also for um, communities uh, in which they're uh, being um, applied. Yeah. Hey, Carrie, you can jump in there, but I want to attach this uh, next question as well, and you can answer this at, at the same time. Is that this issue of zero tolerance policing or that sort of aggressive policing um, sort of responsible for why we see more escalation than de-escalation? Wow, that's a, that's a perfect question. So again, when I said earlier about no one part being a panacea, this is a great example. I was speaking to a good friend of mine, friend of mine for 25, 30 years, Joe Hoffman, 
about these situations. And we don't agree on everything, but he said something to me that enlightened me in a way that I, I just hadn't considered before. Um, he said two things, actually. He reminded me that just because someone can some, do something doesn't mean they should do something. In other words, just because you can arrest Mr. Brooks down in Georgia doesn't mean you should arrest Mr. Brooks down in Georgia. And the other thing that he said that I truly not really ever considered before is, and I worked in training for six years. Um, he said, we don't do a very good job of teaching our officers how to handle no. We say to them, win, 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 win at all costs. No matter what, you better win. So when something small happens or you are told no, you don't know how to bring that back. You don't know how to, if, if you walk up to somebody and say, hey, I, I need to pat you down. And they say, no, you have no reason to. What do you do then? And we have not effectively trained officers to handle, no. you know, you're right, I can't. It's cool. Thought I would ask. Oh, let me see your license. You're standing on the corner. Oh, no. Okay, we're fine. We haven't taught that. So, you know, it, it, it is it's the zero tolerance kind of philosophy has encouraged that if I tell you to do something, you better do it. Do you know who I am? Do you see this badge on my shirt? Do you see this name tag, this patch on my sleeve? Do what I tell you to do or else. What is or else? Is it or else you can put me in jail or else you put me in a chokehold or else you put my knee, I put my knee on your neck and kill you in the street. Well, and, and I'm going to layer this for the next three guys that, that comes up because uh, we talked about it la this last week. Uh, I think Mo brought it up. Where now you finding that citizens are uh, questioning authority uh, more. And I suspect that that would happen if people are a lot more aware of their rights. They start questioning, why is this officer encountering me? So how, when you overlay that, the inability to say no or to back off, what is the solution to that when we're approaching uh, uh, people uh, on the street? Who's up? Mike? I think that's very subjective mm. because I can remember times where you'd hear over the radio where one officer asked another officer to clarify something, either traffic law, criminal law. So I think it comes down to your interaction with the citizen comes down to knowing what the law says, knowing how to explain your position with that citizen, and hopefully uh, coming to a resolution. That's, that's the best way I can put it. Well, I think that the best tool in your toolbox is the ability to say, I don't know, or I'm not sure, and um, I may be wrong here and to back away. See, we've been trained that we have to do something. And sometimes nothing is the best solution. Sometimes it's better to walk away from a situation and say, okay, if somebody's arguing with you and they could make, they're asking questions, then we should do our best to try to answer the question. Now, if the question is getting fit into, if the question is interfering with our job, meaning that uh, we're there to do a specific thing and that question's interfering, that's a different circumstance. But generally, people have a right to ask, you know, why are you arresting me? Why are you stopping me? And we should have an answer. And it's not because I said so, you know? And so we gotta get smarter than that, be able to have conversation with people. And as uh, Mike said, be able to resolve things without going to the next level. Most of these cases that we're seeing now, 
like you said, like you indicated uh, earlier, Reggie, cigarette, a cigarette was involved, a $20 bill, or a guy sleeping in his car, which nobody expects the end to be somebody dying. And so somewhere, the communication breakdown fell, or reasonableness fell on somebody's part. And that's how they ended up in that situation. And so for us, they train us to be warriors. They train us to be machines and zero tolerance is layered on that. And, you know, we got to do something because people are watching. And if we don't do something, then, you know, we're going to be in trouble. Sometimes nothing is better than something. And sometimes it's, it's good to say, I, you know, I'm not sure what's going on here, but it appeared to me that this was what was happening. And I, I need to back away from this now because I could be wrong. Mm. I think people appreciate that more than anything. Yeah, Lee? We talk about how we train our officers and what we train them to, to um, how we train them to, to react and respond in situations. And this issue about responding to no, uh, man, that can go a whole lot of different ways. Um, but we don't teach people how to respond to no. Um, and, and just like he was saying, we teach them how to win at all costs, which I think when we talk about the evolution of training police officers, and, and I mean, we're in the 21st century, but we're still operating with 19th century tactics. Um, and as a profession, we have to evolve. And I don't think we have done that adequately. When you look at a lot of these cases that involve you know, the death of, a, of another African-American person, you're, you're looking at cases where it's not that they were committing a felony, um, in most cases where they were um, committing a murder, for example, or involved in a school shooting or whatever, look at the, the, the circumstances that bring officers in contact with these folks. There's got to be better ways to negotiate or to, to handle those type of situations. And, you know, we have to, policing has to evolve to the point where our tactic, our training tactics uh, and what we're educating officers on has got to change because if we keep using the tactics that we've been using we'll get the same result yeah i want to i want to read something which i think uh I, I think you guys might find interesting um so there's some research uh, out that um by some social psychologists and they talk about executive function which is a kind of flexible cognitive capacity that allows people to pay attention, follow rules, and use different intentional strategies. They've determined that people with a high executive function may harbor animus, but the animus is less likely to influence their behavior. One of the things they talk about is situational risk, which is a factor for biased behavior in an aspect of a person's physical or social surroundings that serves as a cue making biased behavior more likely. One situational risk factor that may be relevant to policing is task complexity. When faced with a complex situation requiring difficult decisions, people often rely on superficial cues, hunches, and intuitions, which increases the likelihood of biased behavior. And this is plainly reflected in the work of policing. The, the liability associated with tax complex, complexity is often exacerbated by time pressure, fatigue, 
emotions such as fear or anger. And these factors are endemic to policing and can undermine the ability to engage in complex or controlled thought. We talked about this as well last week. When Mo said it, when an officer is left by himself, he's left to his training, he's left with his bias, he's left with his fears. The thing that strikes me is that we have to look a lot closer about the things that we're teaching officers and the things that we are addressing in training and how we're approaching it. And it's this whole issue now, you know, this issue of executive function. I mean, are we assessing and recruiting? We talked about that last week, and I hope next week we're going to get into that first, that part of it, uh, the third part, which is how are we selecting people, recruiting? How are we testing to see who we're getting? An academy doesn't turn somebody racist or biased. You're coming to us with that. You're raised in a community where you learn that. I think the problem that, we, that ends up happening is that we end up giving power to somebody with those views and we don't catch that underlying, um, you know, that sort of underlying personal philosophy when they come. Mm -hmm. And so I want to try to see if we can just briefly, uh, you know, we, we talked about it uh, a little bit last week, or what is a quality officer? But I want to look at it in um, this light of the issue of Quality. The W. Edwards Deming had this um, uh, theory on quality, but there's two types of um, variations, I guess he talks about, in a stable system. And one is a common cause of variation where it's things that naturally uh, occur within a process. And the other is a special cause variation, which is unexpected, the results from unusual occurrences. It is important to identify and try to eliminate special cause variation. And I think in a sense, policing is not like a manufacturing process where you start off with a clean slate, an individual coming into an academy. So you're, you're, it turns like we've almost flipped Deming's um, variations on its head because we're starting off with a special cause variation, which is the norm. So we have to look at who are we getting these biases that they're already coming with, so it's, a, it's an unstable uh, process to begin with, but we want to put out a product that meets the needs of the community. How do we create this system, this desirable system, when we're starting with, um, I don't want to say a defective product, but um, unsuitable material? How do we sort of mitigate those things? So, um, <laughs> Reggie, I, I, I'm... I'm reminded of uh, raising my nephew uh, who's 11 years old and, and start, not starting off with a blank slate. I have to monitor him, watch him, uh, train his thoughts, um, show him why things don't work and why they do work. And it's the same thing with a person that's coming into your police department and with no real police experience other than a desire to, to protect and preserve. Um, so if that person comes in, then it's my job as a police chief to make sure that that person is mentored and that his actions are monitored and his thoughts are, are, are trained. Um, and, and any variation from those thoughts, um, unreasonable variations, as the demo would say, um, that we uh, um, address it right away. What's happening now? Chiefs are under the pressure 
to get bodies on the streets. And so we cut corners. We don't spend a, enough time um, looking at who we've recruited or who we brought into the organization. We don't ne spend enough time of analyzing their thoughts and their thinking. And so we ended up with uh, this person who is on the street with a loaded weapon, deadly weapon, and that's not prepared for that unusual situation. And that's where the trouble starts. Yeah. So I, my suggestion is how do you check, how do you fix that? Spend more time at the beginning, making sure that when we hire people, that we train them, we mentor them correctly. Reggie, um, you, you said a lot. And, and if I could touch on just a couple of those things, um, I will disagree with you mm -hmm. about the discipline part. And I think that we, that people don't respond to consequence. They don't make split decisions based on the consequence. And, you know, you've heard that argument so much when it comes to the death penalty and people have said, you know, the death penalty is just not going to change the outcome. So why do you have a death penalty? People aren't going to not murder someone because they're afraid to die in an electric chair, right? Mm -hmm. People respond to incentives, and I feel like I'm being repetitive, but I don't want it to be lost. People respond to incentives and motivations, and we need to encourage certain behaviors by incentivizing the behaviors that we want to see. You know, you talked about the recruiting part. You know, for one, uh, youth is wasted on the young, right? So when you are going to pay, when I started the police department in 1991, uh, 1992, I made $27,454. So you're going to get a certain person paying him $27,454. Somebody with a PhD, you're not going to get somebody with wisdom. You're going to get a 21 year old kid just like you got with me. The second thing that you have to think about is policing is, I don't know if it's unique. I, as a matter of fact, it's not unique at all. People take jobs and careers that are the same as the people around them, the people that they see. How many people did you work with whose dad was also a cop? There's a really large percentage of that. So they are raised a certain way, believing that certain, certain types of policing are supposed to happen. The last two police chiefs in Prince George's County, Maryland, both had parents, uh, dads in law enforcement. So it makes sense that you're going to, that you know, things aren't necessarily going to change because they were raised in an environment where that type of policing has occurred. And to think you're going to change it by not investing is it, and it is, is just, it's counterintuitive. But that's exactly, but that's exactly what we've been talking about today, because that is also part of this um, system or this mindset that we, that is inherited. And it may have started in the 1800s or 1900s chasing uh, runaway um, forced labor, but it, it sort of comes through the system and it's, it's still the same thing. If we even remove the stigma, if you will, that's associated with that time, we still have a recruitment issue where we have people coming in or we have to assume we have people coming in with this bias. Some may, some may not. So my thing is, how do we create? What are the parameters that needs to be put in place? I understand the point, I totally agree. There's um, incentive and disincentive from, for behavior that you want. But how do we 
set up a system now that mitigates these undesired outcomes that we're getting. Obviously, I agree. One is you can stick or carrot, so you can incentivize, but there's something going on right now because I don't think that any organization wants the kind of fallout that we're seeing now. What is it that we need to put in place right now? You know, please don't misunderstand anything that I'm saying. There needs to be consequences to bad behavior. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's you no way you're yeah. You yeah. can't, you can't, um, you can't allow things like we saw in Minneapolis to occur without stiff and severe punishment. Right. But to think that a, a culture is going to change based on consequence is just not going to happen. You know, you could talk about police accountability all the time. Uh, Joe Hoffman, again, told me that in, and I have to research this a bit more, but I believe he said Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, they have developed a program where each and every officer has to have an act of altruism three or five times during a, a month or two months that has to be signed off by either a witness or the person who received the altruistic behavior. And you say to yourself, well, then it's not really altruism if they have to do it. But what it does is it reinforces a certain type of behavior that has multiple benefits. Number one, the person who receives the altruism is saying, wow, wait a second, so cops aren't all bad? They just did something nice for no reason. Secondly, the officer says, wait, if I do something nice, if I do something decent, people like me more. Everybody wants to be liked. And then that helps move people into a way of not confrontation, but partnership. Right. One help someone feel better. One to help someone do something good. And to me, again, I've never heard that before Joe told me that. That is an incredible change of culture. Mm -hmm. Forces someone to do it, but you're automatically changing the behaviors because you know the reward is going to come by the way they feel by performing the altruistic behavior. It, mm -hmm. is, ingenu it is just incredible to me that that hasn't caught on. Um, and I'm looking forward to looking into it more and encouraging the, that to happen in, in agencies throughout the country. It right. is a way to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you have the last word. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, one of the things, I mean, your, your question, Reggie, is really multifaceted. Um, it, it's, I don't think there's any one singular piece that I can pull on, but one of the things that I feel that police departments have, have kind of, gotten away from is things like your vision and your mission statement and your code of ethics and 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 not being true to what those things are all about especially your code of ethics um most of you guys or all of you should be familiar with dr stephen covey um you know he's passed away now but covey said something a few years ago about policing he was talking about the nobility of this profession and he said that it is his belief that policing is one of America's most noble professions. And then he goes on to say that the actions of any one police officer in an instant can impact an individual for life and even a community for generations. Well, given that realization, he says that every police officer must be centered on what is important. And he names service, justice, and fairness. These are the foundational principles that, that we should be sticking to and the foundational principles in which poli every police action must be grounded. That is the philosophical piece. 
And I think that gets lost in police departments. Going back to your question, how do we train officers? How do we educate officers? Things get things like code of ethics, things like your vision and your mission statement get muddled along the way. And then when people, when officers ascend into the organization, instead of not paying attention to those things, they should be really embracing those things and, and helping to educate the future police officers. And I think so, we, we, we have structures in place, we have things in place to help bring us back to what is morally right about policing. Issues of the day, um, the things that hit the media tend to uh, overshadow those things. This is not gonna be an easy thing to fix. You know, for those that are in the field, we have to start somewhere. Um, you know, what troubles me now is we're hearing a lot about police officers quitting. Well, you know, I would say half of them probably didn't need to be there in the first place. So what Dr. King talked about, in, in, in times of, it's easy to, to take a position when things are easy. But when things get hard, this is where your courage and your character come into play. And this is what I think we're gonna see going forward as, as we move forward with the reform and accountability things that we're talking about now. Based on our discussions, it should be evident that the issues facing law enforcement are complex, overlapping, and numerous. Institutional racism or implicit bias is a legacy issue embedded within the DNA of organizations. This does not mean that the majority of officers are racist but individual actions that adversely impact minority communities may be a result of underlying policy. Institutional racism can occur intentionally based on individual action or unintentionally by the individual. It can occur intentionally as a result of policy directed towards a minority group or unintentionally by policy that hasn't been well thought through. When we overlay this issue of institutional uh, bias that's embedded within the organization and we start adding labels that justify our actions, such as the war on drugs, we designate areas as high crime areas, or as part of a police strategy that looks at you know, statistics, uh, how many traffic tickets, arrests that are made as a measurement of success, or we perceive certain communities as dangerous, then we expect problems like what we're seeing right now. Another layer is the issue of zero uh, tolerance, this aggressive style of policing or policing philosophy. And it's defined as a non-discretionary law enforcement approach that is thought to be tough on crime. Under this approach, the police enforce every facet of the law, the resulting effect is escalation rather than de-escalation. We see more arrests, more citations for minor infractions. We see sometimes deadly force that as a result of a minor uh, traffic stop or death from the attempt to use a fake $20 bill. A need for strict compliance, no matter what, is not in the best interest of the community or law enforcement. The position that if you do not obey the direction of the officer is somehow seen as resistant authority. Oh, we see arrests of children in schools, 
who are having behavioral issues. When we look at the issues in recent uh, memory, we see Eric Garner killed for selling uh, cigarettes. We see Alton Sterling from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who, was, who died at the hands of police. for selling CDs. George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota for attempting to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. And Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri who started off with the initial contact was he was walking in the middle of the street. Within the non-white community, this type of policing is a reminder of the black codes post-slavery where Africans were again enslaved through arrest for minor infractions and then leased to the former slave owners and businesses. There may be a reason that in the incarcerated population in the United States of 2.3 million people, blacks are overrepresented at 37% while they're only 22% of the overall US population. Lack of quality control standards in recruiting, policy, promotion, training and management that specifically seek to mitigate the impact of historically embedded bias leads to structural violence. Structural violence refers to the systematic ways in which social structures harm or otherwise disadvantage individuals. It is subtle, often invisible, and often has no one specific person who can or will be held responsible. Institutional racism or bias is structural because they are embedded in the political, economic, and social organizations of our world. Institutional racism is historically given processes, and when compounded by other policies, perceptions, and lack of awareness, deny segments of our community the protection from harms and the exercise of guaranteed rights. The impact of stop and frisk that disproportionately impact non-white communities the disparity in handling of drug addiction where the crack academic uh, that impacted black communities was criminalized as opposed to the opioid epidemic that is impacting white communities and is handled as a health concern. Or racial profiling on highways where minor traffic offenses are used to stop, interrogate, and search vehicles as a policing strategy. While it may be legitimate on the surface, it disproportionately targets non-white members of the traveling public. The issues of institutional racism is not solely per se a law enforcement issue. After all, police officers are recruited from the wider community. This is why the current state of affairs may be unwarranted when specifically and solely directed to law enforcement. You cannot have racial bias in a police agency in a country that values and respects the rights of all persons regardless of race, sex, gender, color, language, religion, political affiliation, national or social origin. At the time the words, all men are created equal, many were not, and we must explore this disparity. Let's examine the actions of Amy Cooper, the Central Park caller in New York, or the other instances highlighted on social media where the police have been called on non-white persons barbecuing in a park or writing Black Lives Matter on their property.
a recent collaboration between researchers at Stanford University and the Oakland Police Department confirmed some suspicions. Researchers analyzed over 100 hours of body camera footage from 981 traffic stops and concluded that police officers were less respectful in their use of language with non-white members of the community, thereby increasing the likelihood of erosion of relations between the police and the community they serve. We may not be able to eliminate the feelings of animus directed to one non-white communities, but law enforcement agencies may mitigate its occurrence through better recruitment, training, management, policy, and promotion in line with the needs of the community and the goal of attenuating any bias as a matter of urgency. Thanks to our participants, Mike Brown, Lee James, Maurice Davis, and Kerry Watson for sharing your insights. The next episode will examine the state and difficulties of recruiting law enforcement candidates. Thank you for joining us at Human Rights Matters, where we discuss matters of human rights because your rights matter.